Hi, my name is Michael Tuck, and I'm the associate pastor here at Bacon's Castle Baptist Church. We are a local church in Surrey, Virginia, dedicated to making disciples of Jesus Christ. This is the weekly podcast that we put out for our local church family and the church as a whole. We hope you enjoyed this week's podcast. We saw this morning that the Psalms are a collection of poems that were collected after the exile of Israel. Uh, some of them have been put to song. Maybe a lot of them were put to song, but not all of them were. Micah told us last Sunday, as we began, last summer, excuse me, as we began this, uh, this series on the Psalms, he said that the Psalms were heart cries uh, of the authors, and they were often laden with lots of intense emotion. The Psalms definitely teach us that God is not scared of our raw emotion. He is not scared of our pain. And uh, he is able to listen to our hurt. We learned that the, the book of Psalms is actually divided into five books. Uh, if, if you were paying attention on the screen to the Bible Project, they said that Psalms 1 and 2 are an introductory uh, an introductory set of psalms. I'm not sure they're exactly right on that. I think book one actually may be include Psalms 1 and 2. I'm not sure about that, but we're going to treat it the way they have divided it up, that there's an introduction in 1 and 2, and there's five books divided by, you can look it up on, you can Google it and find out which psalms fall in each book. And, and then there's the, the conclusion of those five praise psalms. And so what we're going to do this summer is I'm going to do, we're going to do a psalm from each of those sections, one from the introduction, one from the conclusion, and one from each of the five books in the middle. That's what we'll do for the next seven, seven weeks. Today we're going to look at the, the one other psalm in the introduction. Last year, uh, Michael began our, our treatment of the book of psalms by actually looking at Psalm 1. This morning we're going to look at Psalm Two. And I, I'm actually very excited to share with you Psalm 2. And, and I, uh, I, I hope I don't put too much in it. I hope I don't give you too much information. Uh, during my practice this morning, I felt like I needed to keep what I've written in here. So I'm going to share it with you. Let's read Psalm 2 together. You have your Bibles? I'm going to be reading from the CSB, from the Christian Standard Bible, if you happen to have a, a, a digital Bible and you want to look up the exact translation. Why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers conspire together against the Lord and his anointed one. Let's tear off their chains and throw their ropes off of us. The one enthroned in heaven laughs, the Lord ridicules them. Then he speaks to them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath. I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. I will declare the Lord's decree. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance and the ends of the earth your possession. You will break them with an iron scepter. You will shatter them like pottery. So now kings be wise, receive instruction. You judges of the earth, serve the Lord with reverential awe and rejoice with trembling. Pay homage to the sun or he will be angry and you will perish in your rebellion for his anger may ignite at any moment. All who take refuge in him are happy. The poet Robert Browning once wrote, God's in heaven, all is right with the world. Really? 
And I kind of don't really resonate with that. I resonate more with this limerick that someone wrote. God's plan may be made a hopeful beginning, but man spoiled his chances by sinning. We trust that a story will end in God's glory, but at present, the other side's winning. Kind of feels like that, more like that than what Mr. Browning said, right? It kind of feels like that to me. From the 17th to the 19th century, it saw the rise of post-millennialism. Let me define that term. Many of you won't know what that means, but this is the rise of post-millennialism among Christians. Now, post-millennialism was the thought that the kingdom of God would spread throughout all the earth. And it's not just that it would spread throughout all the earth, but that it would overcome the earth. It would transform the world. All the world would, would come under the submission of Jesus. That was the post-millennial thought. And in spite of what we hear today, and it's wrong, by the way, all this talk that uh, Christians have always been anti-science, etc., none of that's true. In fact, Christians were the catalyst of so much change and so much good between the 16th and 19th centuries. The monastic movement uh, invented all kinds of things, water mills, which gave birth to the wool clothing industry. They invented, the, the, the monks invented things like plant breeding and other agricultural tools that, that spread or increased the productivity of the farm. Uh, they gave us the university. Christian cosmology gave us the scientific message, uh, method, excuse me, 62% of the 54 top scientist thinkers in the 16th and 17th century were not just devout Christians, they were devout church leaders. They were men who were recognized, to, recognized as leading the church. And though not every church leader got on board with scientific advances, um, these incredible advances were, they led to this idea of post-millennialism, that Christianity was going to spread over all the earth and over all the world, and it would eventually create a utopia. It would eventually create this utopia, this Garden of Eden again, to which Jesus would then step back into our world, and, and, and the kingdom would be given to him already redeemed by the good news of Jesus, right? You follow me? That was post-millennialism. Um, but, um, and so some things in the Bible that kind of led to this were the, the mustard seed parallel, uh, parable, y'all remember that one, right? Where the smallest of seeds would grow into this large plant that all the birds of the air often used as a, as a metaphor for the nations would come and roost in its branches. Or the parable of the leavened bread. Remember that one? Jesus said the kingdom of God's like leaven and it kind of spreads throughout all the bread. And so the kingdom of God was going to spread throughout all the world. And post-millennialism was on the rise everywhere in the church. But then World War I happened and 20 million people died, followed by the Spanish flu where another countless millions of people died. And the post-millennial bubble was beginning to pop. You couple that with the 1950s rise of uh, dispensational, premillennial dispensationalism. I know those are big words. It's a whole other system of understanding what would happen in the future, popularized by the Schofield Bible. I mean, that was just another hit on postmillennialism. And then World War II came, 60 million dead, and the postmillennial bubble burst. In fact, I would say it almost went extinct, this whole idea that somehow the gospel would redeem the entire world. All that to say that the world generally today seems further from God maybe than it was generations ago when you know secularism and this anti-God movement in the world wasn't as, as big as it is today. 
In fact, the world seems to be getting more and more hostile towards God. Don't you kind of feel that? I think we feel that in our Western world in particular, in the Western world, maybe not so much in the East or even in the, in the sub, sub uh, below the equator, right? Maybe not so much there. But in our Western Northern world, we, we find the world raging against God, raging against the existence of God and his rule over the world. Now, Psalm 2 addresses this raging of men, even this raging of nations against God. And it speaks of a time, now listen, Psalm 2 speaks of a time when God is going to appoint a king who will put an end to it the way it is. And he will change the world. All the nations will be brought under this anointed, this anointed king. This psalm points us to the Messiah, another biblical word that I need to define. Messiah is just a transliteration of the Hebrew word for anointed king, right, or, or anointing. So this a Messiah, this is the anointed king that Psalm 2 actually talks about. And this is considered one of the great messianic um, psalms of, of the book of Psalms. Now, unlike what the brother said on the, on the film, uh, on the, the, the thing on the Psalms, right? He said that the first two Psalms are anonymous and they are anonymous, but this Psalm is anonymous, but Acts chapter four, verse 25, and since we are biblical people in our family, it tells us that the author of this song is actually King David. And this Psalm is actually quoted or is quoted pretty often in the, in the New Testament, which will help us... F- you know, help us as we go through the psalm. Now, for us to hang our thoughts on this morning, I'm going to give you a four-point outline. It's going to, the outline is going to be this, the world about us, the God above us, the king over us, and then the path before us. So that's how we'll lay out our thoughts this morning. Let's begin, the world about us. Verse one, why do the nations rage and people plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers conspire against the Lord, against God and his anointed one. There's that word Messiah. Let's tear off their chains and throw uh, their robes off of us. Now, to rightly understand this psalm, we're going to have to acknowledge that on one level, this applies to King David. When David wrote this, in one sense, he's writing about himself. He is God's anointed king in Jerusalem, and the nations that have been put under him are rebelling against him, and he's asking the question, why are you rebelling against God, and why are you rebelling against God's anointed king, i.e. myself? King David writes that it's a folly for them to rebel against what God has done and what God is doing. And uh, he says, because God has promised certain things. And there's a sense in which chapter two, verses one through three, the kings of David's day are rebelling against him. But it's also clear as we get into the New Testament, and it's also clear actually as we go through the Psalm, because these things did not all apply to King David, that this Psalm is looking beyond David to the one that, uh, that Matt talked about when he read the scriptures, he talks about this coming son of David who would reign over the kingdom forever, that it's, it's looking to this Messiah, to this anointed king. There's a sense in which Psalm 2 looks beyond David and it's looking to the coming king that Israel was looking for and that we believe has already come. And he wasn't just a king for Israel. He was a king for all the world, for all the Gentiles and all the Jews. He was a king for all of us. And of course, his name is Jesus. In Acts chapter 4, in the New Testament, Peter and John, you remember they're arrested for healing 
the, uh, the crippled fellow in, in the temple. And he, they're brought before the, the, the Sanhedrin and they're basically told, you're not to preach in the name of Jesus anymore. Remember, Peter stands up and he says, hey, if it's right for us to obey you or to obey God, you know, you kind of decide, but as for us, we can't help but preach in Jesus' name. So they let them go after warning them. And then they go back and they meet together. And in chapter four, verse 24, we have a little snippet of that meeting. And so they come back, Peter and John, and they tell everybody what happened. In verse 24, and when they heard it, that is all the brothers that are gathered there and hearing Peter and John's story, they lifted their voices together and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, and here's the quote of Psalm 2, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kingdoms of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered again together against the Lord and against his anointed. So there's that quote from Psalm 2. And they're saying David, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, spoke this not about, not just about David himself in his context, but he spoke it about the Lord and his anointed one today, i.e. Jesus. Verse 27, for truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, whom you made Messiah, the anointed one, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel. In other words, everyone to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. The New Testament writers recognized that Psalm 2 had a greater fulfillment in Yeshua, had a greater fulfillment in Jesus the Messiah. And even as they raged against David in those years gone by, they raged against Jesus, God's anointed, when Jesus uh, was here. And so they crucified him. In essence, they were saying no to God's anointed. They were saying no to God. They were saying no to God's rule over them. And they were saying, we want to rule ourselves. Now, I, I do, before I leave this point, I want to suggest that there is still yet another fulfillment to Psalm 2. There's a greater fulfillment, if you would, to Psalm 2. There's a fulfillment in a sense when David wrote it. There's a fulfillment in a sense when Jesus came and they crucified him and he rose again. But there is another fulfillment when Jesus, the anointed king, returns. And I think a lot of Psalm 2 is pointing us to that day. Revelation 19, verse 11, towards the end of the revelation, this is what it says. Then I saw, John speaking, I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse and the one sitting on it, it is, he's called faithful and true. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He's clothed in a robe dipped in blood and the name by which he is called is the word of God. Drop down to verse 19, Revelation 19, 19. And I saw the beast and the kings of the, of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured and the false prophet uh, who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and, and those who worshiped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. And the, here's the part I want you to see. And the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. So it, that Revelation 19 tells us this, that in the future there's going to be this great war 
of ra- and raging war against God's anointed, against God's Messiah, in a war to end all wars. In fact, I'd suggest there'll never be another war after this one. And, and, you know, and I realize not everybody would agree with me there might be coming another war, but I think this is going to be the war that's going to end all wars. Now, I'm not sure how that war is going to go down, but it's the king on the white horse, Jesus, who is going to defeat the nations by the word of his mouth. And so Isaiah, at the end of Isaiah in the Old Testament, the last chapter of Isaiah, the last verses of Isaiah says this, for as the new heaven and the new earth that I make shall remain before me, says the Lord, so shall your offspring and your name remain. For new moon to new moon, from Sabbath to Sabbath, all flesh shall come to worship before me, declares the Lord, and they shall go out and look on the dead bodies of the men who have rebelled against me. For their worm shall not die, and their fire shall not be quenched, and they shall be in abhorrence to all flesh. In other words, there's coming this final defeat, or this final battle against God's anointed, where the nations will rage against him, but he shall defeat him. Defeat them. Now, one more thought before I move on. Though this psalm speaks of nations raging against God and not submitting, truth is, nations are made up of individual people. So really, this is about the peoples, the individual peoples raging against submitting to God. And let's be honest, everyone, this is a problem for all of us. All of us struggle with wanting, all of us struggle with wanting much less doing, submitting to God's desires for us and God's plans for us. And um, we rage against him as our king. When God created us, I believe he created us with some autonomy free of himself. He knew that that was a possibility. When he created us with some autonomy, he knew that we might rebel against submitting to him. And in fact, the Bible says that all of us like sheep have gone astray. All all of us have turned to our own way. So we all struggle at some level to submit to Yahweh, to submit to, to the creator God, whose name, by the way, is Yahweh. That's the name he gives us for him. Now, obviously, obviously some folks turn in faith to Yahweh, but most of the world suppresses the knowledge of Yahweh. Most of the world suppresses the truth of God's righteous rule over them because they don't want him to rule in their lives. And yet God says this, one day, all the nations, which I believe means all of us as individuals, you and I will stand before God, and the only key for us today is to repent. Unless we repent, we too individually shall be destroyed by the Lord as all the nations will. That's the world around us. Let's look at the God above us, verse four. The one enthroned in heaven laughs and the Lord ridicules them. What does God think of the raging of the nations? What does God think of their desire to come against his king? Well, it says here that the God of of, of the God of the universe laughs at them, scoffs at their derisions. The nations or the peoples of the nations, they've created their own gods. They're gods they've carved them out of wood and precious stones. Did you know they would often ask Israel this kind of question? Where's your God? See, here's our God. He's sitting on the table over here. We carved him out of emerald or we made him out of wood or whatever. Here's our God. Where's your God? Here's here's Israel's answer in Psalm 115. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory. For the sake of your steadfast love, your faithfulness. Why should the nation say, where is their God? Where is the idol? Where is their God? 
Our God is in heaven. He does all that he pleases. The psalmist understood something about God. He sits in heaven and he does everything that he pleases. He he sits in heaven and he's the sovereign king. God is sovereign. God is the supreme Lord. He does whatever he pleases. Now, let me talk about this for a moment. I've talked about it from time to time. I want to talk about it this morning. Some believe that sovereignty means that God meticulously controls everything that happens. Not a dust mite moves, you know, here or there without God causing it to do so. Here's a quote. If there's one rogue molecule that is not being controlled by God, then God is not God and you can have no peace. Others, others say sovereignty means this, that the sovereignty of God means that God sits in heaven and he does whatever he pleases. And it has pleased the Lord to give us some degree of autonomy, some freedom of decisions where we can make decisions apart from his meticulous control. A.W. Tozer, you may have heard that name. Here's how A.W. Tozer describes it. He says, and I quote, God sovereignly decreed that man should be free to exercise moral choice. And man from the beginning has fulfilled that decree by making his choice between good and evil. When he chooses to do evil, he does not thereby countervail the sovereign will of God, but fulfills it. Inasmuch as the eternal decree of God decided not which choice the man should make, but that he should be free to make it. If in his absolute freedom, God has willed to give man limited freedom, who is there to stay his hand or to say, what does thou do? Man's will is free because God is sovereign. A God less than sovereign could not bestow moral freedom upon his creatures. He would be afraid to do so. So here's here's what I think is happening here. I think God in his sovereignty, he's, he's not scared to give the nations a freedom apart from his own, a freedom to, uh, to go against him. In fact, some people say that God, you know, for God to be sovereign, he sort of has to play both sides of the chessboard. He has to make the moves for us and the moves for himself. I believe otherwise. God in his sovereignty is so wise, so knowing that he can beat all of us. He can beat all of us in spite of the fact that I have some freedom to make choices apart from his will. But here's the thing I want you to notice. Regardless of how you define sovereignty, God sits in heaven and he laughs and he ridicules the nations for believing that somehow they can circumvent his will. We cannot circumvent God's will. God is above all, and what God desires, God brings about because God is king over us. That brings us to the third headline, the king over us. I want you to see the king over us in verse 5. Then God speaks to them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath. I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. I will declare the Lord's decree. He said to, my, to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Let's not, let's not uh, forget the immediate context. There's a sense in which David is talking about himself. He has been anointed the king over Israel at this point, And he's basically saying, God has, install- God has installed me on his mountain. He removed the kingship from Saul. He gave it to me. Uh, he's called me his son, you know. And, and so there's a sense in which David's talking about himself. But this psalm, 
This psalm looks so much further down the road and so much bigger than just David. This is a psalm about God's only begotten son. Not just King David, but the one who would be called the son of God by virtue of his incarnation. Now listen, again, these are some big words. I want to define them for just in case you wouldn't know what they mean. But incarnation, that's a theological term. We mean by that that God became a human being like us. Okay? God, be, God took on our humanity. God wasn't an apparition. He wasn't a ghost. He, he, didn't, he wasn't a hologram. No, he became one of us. Yeshua, Jesus, didn't just jump into a body and run around in a body for 33 years like we might drive around in a car. Jesus, Jesus didn't just take on human form like we see in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, Jesus, we think it's Jesus, or God, somebody who is God, took on human form, but he didn't become human. He just looked like a human, I guess maybe he, I don't know, I don't know how to distinguish this other than to say, and this is something I really want you to get, everyone, Jesus became a person like us. He took on our humanity. He didn't just look like us and have our form on the outside. He became one of us. He coupled his divinity with our humanity, and, and he didn't lose either one. But here's the thing that I want you to understand. He didn't lose his humanity ever, and he never will. Jesus became a human like us, never to relinquish it. So when Jesus rose from the dead, the Bible says he rose glorified like we will one day, and he is immortal, never to die again. And Jesus in heaven today is there in his humanity. He's there in his humanity and his divinity, but he is there in heaven in his full humanity. In Acts 13, Paul quotes Psalm 2, and he says, Jesus is the only begotten Son of God. The author of Hebrews will take the same passage from Psalm 2 and say, Jesus is the only begotten Son of God. God was looking beyond David when he called him his son, and he was looking to the day that God himself would become one of us, and he would call that person who became one of us the son of God because of uh, the incarnation, because of what Jesus did. I mean, that's, man, that is so incredible, isn't it? That God would be willing to humble him. I don't think we get it. I don't think we get it, that God would humble himself to become one of us. It's incredible. Psalm 110 is the most often, I believe the most often quoted psalm in the New Testament. And here Jesus uses Psalm 10 to make the point that I, I think Psalm 2 is trying to make, though I'm making it. No one else has made, I mean, I think this is the point of Psalm 2. But Jesus made this point explicitly in Psalm 110. In Matthew 22, Jesus is in an exchange with the Pharisees. And this is what he says to them. He, they gathered together and he asked them a question, verse 42, Matthew 22, 42. What do you think about the Messiah? Whose son is he? And they answered him, and they said, the son of David. And he said to them, okay, how is it then that David, in the spirit, calls him, that is the Messiah, Lord? That, that word Lord, you know, is a, is a word for God, saying, the Lord said to my Lord, God said to my God, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, a word for God, how is it that he is his son? 
And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. They had started asking him a question. He'd answered, turned the tables on them, and they wouldn't answer because he understood his implication. Here's his, understand, his implication. If the Messiah was just going to be like a natural-born son of David, why would David refer to him as as Lord, Why would David refer to him with a God name? And the implication was because the Messiah would be more than just a human son of David, that he would be the Lord, that he would be God. Peter quotes this opening line of Psalm 110 in his first sermon. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. And then he draws this conclusion at the end of his sermon in verse 36. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Messiah, both Lord and anointed king, this Jesus whom you crucified. Paul would say something similar. He would say, therefore, this is to the Philippian church, therefore God has highly exalted Jesus and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus the Messiah is Lord, is God to the glory of God the Father. In Athens, Paul would say on Mars Hill at the Acropolis, he would say this in his argument with the philosophers, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance by raising him from the dead. God, Jesus, is God's appointed king. He's God's appointed Messiah. His name, his name was, his Hebrew name was Yeshua. His Greek name was Jesus. His English, I mean, was uh, Jesus. His, his uh, English name is Jesus. His Spanish name is Jesus. Psalm 2.8 says, ask of me, back to the psalm, ask of me and I'll make the nations your inheritance. This is, this is in the psalm that David wrote. And the ends of the earth your possession. You will break them with an iron scepter. You will shatter them like pottery. God never gave David the ends of the earth as his dominion. But this is a promise that he will give to his Messiah, his anointed king the son of David, his only begotten son, he would give him the nations as an inheritance. He would rule over all the world. Here's that Revelation 19 passage again. Let me read you just a few verses, 14 through 16. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him, that is Jesus, on a white horses. From his mouth, Jesus' mouth, comes a sharp sword, which is to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty on his robe and on his thigh. He has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of lords. He'll strike down the nations. How about Isaiah's prophecy in 9-6? We, we quote it every Christmas, right? To us a son is given and the government will be on his shoulders and he'll be called the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. Now listen to this. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on forever. And the zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish it. One more. This is where I feel like throwing some of this stuff out, but I can't. Daniel saw in a vision, he, they, they, Daniel saw 
when Jesus, remember in, in, it's in Matthew, I think they, they, they see Jesus ascend into heaven. They're standing there looking up and all of a sudden two angels are with them and say, why are you looking up? This, this one that's taken from you, he's going to come in the same way again, right? What happened to Jesus after he went up? Well, Daniel records it for us. And he says this, suddenly one like a son of man was coming with the clouds of heaven. And he approached the Ancient of Days and was escorted before him. And he was given dominion and glory and a kingdom so that those of every people, nation, and language should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass. And his kingdom is one that will not be destroyed. The kingdom of Jesus is going to fill the earth. The kingdom of Jesus is, he's going to reign over all the earth and he's going to remove the curse. He's going to lift the curse and all the stuff that curses our world will be gone. And Jesus is going to make our world, his kingdom into the paradise that we lost in the garden of Eden. That brings us to the fourth, the fourth title to hang our thoughts on, the path before us. Verse 10. So now kings be wise, receive instruction, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with reverential awe and rejoice with trembling. Pay homage to the sun and he will be angry or he will be angry and you will perish in your rebellion. For his anger may ignite at any moment. All who take refuge in him are happy. So David ends this psalm and he gives a path of response to the kings, to the nations. And actually, this path of response is really, it's really a twofold path. You have to choose one or the other, but he gives us two paths that we can take. So here's the first path. The first path is to bow your life before the Lord in awe and in joy. That's the first path. You can bow your life before God in awe and in joy. Verse 11, serve the Lord with reverential awe, rejoicing with trembling. God is asking all of us to take a knee, to bow before God with joy out of an incredible awe for who he is. Romans 1.20 says, for his invisible attributes, that is his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen since the creation of the world, being understood through what he has made. And as a result, people are without excuse. Here's what Romans says. The awesomeness of God is seen in the universe. I don't know, is everybody aware what happened this week when the Webb telescope started throwing us images back? Are you aware of that? Okay, so remember they put the Hubble telescope up there and, and it, was, it was such an advance. We got to see so many different things. There's a new telescope now. It's called the Webb telescope. Next week I'm gonna show you, I'm gonna show you lots of pictures because the psalm lends itself right into it. But the incredible images from the Webb telescope are incredible. And, and I was actually listening to a podcast this week and, and, and the one, the guy was talking about all this incredible beauty that we can't even see. I mean, it's, it, apart from the Webb telescope, we never knew it existed. Nobody saw it but God. And, and here's, here's, what, here's what Romans tells us. God's awe is seen in his, in his universe. And listen, everyone, the, the, more we, the more we gain in knowledge, the more we're able to see the universe that God has created. I, I mean, the, the secularists and the, and the atheists would say, why would God create such a universe? Well, if God can create a universe out of his spoken word, why not create something that would leave us absolutely in awe 
of our creator because he created such an incredible universe. Well, that's, that's, what, that's why we should submit ourselves to the law. Lord, David says it. He says, submit to the Lord in reverential awe. Revere him for what the universe says about him. The first path leads us to bowing our knee before Jesus as our, I mean, before God as our creator. But notice that in the text, you can't bow the knee to God without bowing the knee to his son. You see that in verse 12? Pay homage to the son. You cannot have the father if you reject the son. You can't pay homage to God if you're not going to pay homage to his son, the Lord Jesus. In John chapter 6, Jesus said, all who belong to the Father, he gives to the Son. And some believe that means that God preselects who he wants to save and he gives them to Jesus. I don't believe that's what Jesus meant. I believe that Jesus meant everyone who listens to the Father and belongs to the Father, these are the ones who will come to the Son because anybody who knows the Father will recognize the Son. You cannot bow your knee to God and not, re not receive his son, not know his son. Why? Because Jesus said, the Father and I are, say it, they're one, we're one. So if you come to the Father, you're going to know the, the son. God's going to make sure if you come to the Father, you know the son. You will not come to the Father and reject the Lord Jesus. The psalmist says, serve the Lord with reverential awe and you will rejoice with trembling. Then he says, pay homage to the Son and all who take refuge in him, in the Son, are happy. The one path of submission to God leads to this. It leads to joy and happiness. I'm serious. Jesus said, I have come that you might have life and that you might have it what? abundantly, right? So the path, you want the path of joy and well-being, the path of life, Keith talked about last week. If you want the path of life, come to the Son and pay homage to Jesus. Come to God and bow your knee and bow your life to Him. And when you do, He'll give you the Spirit and the Spirit will lead your life in such a way that you will experience joy and happiness. Now please, don't misunderstand because the life that God may, you may lead, may lead to physical torture. It may lead to pain and misery. It may lead to the loss of possessions and property. It may lead to the loss of your liberty, your limb, and even your life. And you say, wait a minute, you just said it's gonna to lead to happiness and joy. And, and I do believe there's a sense in which when I come and follow Jesus, there's a sense in which he, he gives me abundant life in my heart. But that doesn't mean that alongside that, I'm not gonna suffer. I talked to a young lady last night and, and she was talking about the church that she went in, went to when she was growing up. And then when she became an adult, she said everything that they taught me as a, as a child, they just left out so much. And, and I told this young lady, I said, that's why our church family needs to be committed to as best we can, even when our children are young, teenage, we need to tell them the hard stuff and we need to make sure they understand all the things about the scripture so that when they become young adults emancipated from us, they're not like, well, my church didn't tell me any of this. My church family kept this from me. We don't need to keep any of that from anybody. We need to be sharing our children as age appropriate, all the things that they, all the things the scripture talks about, right? And um, so I'm, I'm trying to say to you, though God promises a life of happiness, man, that doesn't mean that if you follow Jesus, 
I mean, so many of our brothers and sisters around the world today are being tortured at this very minute. I put in my email the other day, I think her name was Dorothy. I don't don't think too many of you clicked on it. It tells me how many clicks, but you should go back and look at it. And Dorothy was a student in, um, I think it was Ethiopia. And she made a text. She sent a text talking about Jesus. I don't remember what she said in the text, but it wasn't a front to Islam. It wasn't anything like that. But somebody took her text and used it to accuse her of saying something anti-Islamic. And they ended up stoning her there in the, in the courtyard of the uh, university. The whole time somebody's screaming, praise, praise Allah, praise Allah, praise Allah, as they're stoning her. And then they pour gasoline. She's a 20-year-old Christian. And they pour gasoline on her, and then they burn her. So how does that fit? How does that fit? Pay homage to the Son. All who take refuge in Him are happy. Serve the Lord with reverential awe and you'll rejoice with trembling. How does those two fit? Well, there is a sense, and I think her name was Dorothy. There is a sense, there is a sense, I'm sure, in which Dorothy in the midst of all of that suffering was experiencing joy from the Lord. I'm assuming that's to be true. But but here, here is the promise in the resurrection and in the kingdom to come, and I'm not just making this up, and I'm not, I'm gonna tell you why I'm not just making this up, but in the resurrection to come, Jesus said to us, anybody who gives up in this life, anything, I will return it over a hundredfold. What he's trying to say is, yeah, you may suffer in this life. I give you abundant life now. You may suffer in this life. And who knows, guys, the West seems to be The West and its bubble of protection around Christianity seems to be collapsing all around us. In the same way that the post-millennial bubble began to collapse on itself, it seems like our Christian bubble is beginning to collapse on itself. And who knows how difficult it may be for our grandchildren or our great-grandchildren in days to come, right? But here's the promise of Jesus. In my kingdom to come, in my kingdom to come, you will receive joy, joy. But there's another path set before us in the text, and this is the path of rebellion that leads to destruction. If you reject God or the Son, he will be angry and you will perish in your rebellion for his anger may ignite at any moment. The second path is one of choosing rebellion against God and his anointed king. You've got two paths before you, submission to God and his king or rejection of God and his king. Those are, those are the two paths you set, set before you. One leads to joy and life. One leads to anger and perishing. The word perishing there is, is the Greek word apalumi. Now I know it's a Hebrew word translated in the Septuagint by apalumi, which means to destroy, ruin, lose, But there's an insightful truth about apolumi, the Greek word. When used in the context of a human being, apolumi always means to kill them, to murder them, to take away their life. Jesus said, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Well, it sounds familiar, doesn't it? That whoever believes in him should not be apolumi, should not perish, but should have everlasting life. In Mark 8, Jesus said, if anyone comes, wants to follow after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will apolumi it. But whoever loses, whoever apolumi's his life because of me and the gospel will save it. 
For what does it benefit anyone to gain the whole world and yet apalumi his life? His life is destroyed. What can anyone give in exchange for his life? There is nothing more valuable than your life, than you experiencing and having life. Matthew 7, 13. Enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the road broad that leads to destruction. Apalumi. And there are many who go through it. How narrow is the gate and difficult the road that leads to life and few find it. One path leads to life, but one path leads to destruction. One path leads to apalumi, to perishing. And in the final judgment, after the resurrection of all the dead, Isaiah 66, verse 24, they shall go out and look on the dead bodies of all the men who've rebelled against me, for their worms shall not die and their fire shall not be quenched and they shall be an abhorrence to all flesh. So the nations have a choice and by, I'm done. I'm done, just got my conclusion here. So, so give me your attention again if, if it's been waning. So the nations have a choice, but remember nations are made up of individuals. So each of us as an individual has a choice. Of choice. The world around us, the men around us rage against our God and against his anointed king. But God laughs at them. He laughs at their derision and their rage and their foolish attempts to usurp his sovereignty. So he has installed his king over us, King Jesus, and all that is left for all of us is to make a choice to make a choice. What path will you and I take? That's, that's the choice before us. What path will we take? I wanna to say to you this morning, take, take a path. Choose a path. Listen, to, to sit on the fence or to stand at the fork in the road is to take a path. It really is. To, to not take a path is to take a path. If Jesus is king, pay him homage. If Jesus is God's king, own him as your king. Follow him as your king. Bow before him. Pledge your life to him. Follow after him. Give your all for him if he is king. If not, choose your God. Choose your God and follow your God. And I say this, most likely the God you'll choose is yourself. If you don't choose Jesus, you're most likely going to choose yourself to be God. Although there are other gods we can put in our life. But, but hear me out. Psalm 2 says, but the end will be your destruction. The end will be your destruction. Why not choose this creator who loves you? Why not choose him? Why, why not choose the one who entered into our humanity to save us? We love Thor, don't we? If you watch the Marvel movies, I know some of you don't, but if you watch the Marvel movies, you love Thor. Why do you love Thor? You love Thor because Thor's the god of thunder, right? Or the god of lightning or whatever he is. And he leaves his realm or what I can't remember what it's called. But he comes into our world to help us. And so we love Thor because he's been willing to leave his place and come and help us. Or remember in the end game, I think, or the, the, whatever it was called, Poseidon, the god of the oceans and the water, he comes and joins the fight for humanity against the bad guy. And we love Poseidon because he's a god and he comes and uh, he fights for us. So these gods of Greek mythology and Marvel comics, we love them because they leave their place and they come and they care about us. Listen. 
creator, the God of gods, the one God who's not a creation of Greek mythology, who's not a creation of Marvel comics, the one true God, he did that. He left his heaven above, entered into our humanity and became one of us. And I don't think we understand this because maybe he didn't take up his cosmic power and fight in that way. He didn't fight in that way at all. He is gonna fight in that way when he comes back. But he didn't fight in that way in this time. He came and he humbled himself, became a baby, and was willing to die for us. Why don't we love him like we love Thor and these other gods of marble creation? Why, why don't we love this creator of all things who is the creator of all the angelic beings and all the, all the divine beings of the divine council? Uh, he, he created all of that and he came to rescue us. Why would we not give ourselves to him? He is worthy. Joshua stood before the people of Israel at, a, at another point. And he said, men and women, choose you this day who you're going to serve. I mean, if you want to serve the gods of Canaan, if you want to serve the gods of the Baals, I mean, go for it. Serve them. Serve them. But make a decision. Who are you going to follow? Who are you going to serve? If, if Jehovah be God, if Yahweh be God, serve him. If there be God, serve them. I put the same question to us this morning. Who are you going to follow? Are you going to follow Jesus? Are you going to follow another? But make a decision. Make a choice. Choose. And then follow him with all your heart. Thank you so much for listening this week. If you have any questions, you can email them to Pastor Jimmy at baconscastle.com. Also, check us out on YouTube and Facebook to get to know us and see what God is doing here in Surrey. Be blessed.